You're listening to Nightlight. Hi, and welcome once again to Nightlight. Howard Storm is back with us on the program. He's the author of Descent into Death, A Second Chance at Life. On Nightlight a couple of weeks ago, Howard shared with us his story, and I invited our listeners to email me any questions that they might have. And I've compiled these to ask Howard, who's speaking to us once again from his home in rural Kentucky. Welcome back to Nightlight, Howard. We have a guest tonight on Nightlight. Howard, the first question I have is from Alfredo in Venezuela, and he was actually the one who suggested that I interview you for this program. And he also wrote to you and put us in touch. So thanks so much for doing that, Alfredo. Anyway, Alfredo asks, who were those dark creatures that were waiting for you outside of the hospital room? Were they demons? Okay. Um, I get that question a fair amount, and I am 100% certain they were not demons. They were people. This is very difficult for me to say, personally, emotionally difficult. Right. Because I knew that they were people just like me. Right. They were my kindred spirits, or in a very sort of a perverse sort of way, they were my soulmates. They were not unfamiliar to me. I was not able to identify them like, oh, that's good old Bill, and that's Sam, and that's George. No, I, I never saw them that clearly. They never identified themselves. And in that place of permanent darkness, they probably would have been unrecognizable, whatever, and whatever was going on. But the point is, is that I mean this quite sincerely. I love them, and I want them to be rescued. The only problem is... Um, I don't know if they can be. I mean, of course, with God, nothing's possible, but I'm talking about them. There's so many theories about people that go to hell. You know, there's theories of annihilation that ultimately they, they would just cease to be. There's universalists that believe that everybody's going to get saved and nobody's going to stay in hell. Right. Um, the one that really resonates with me and mm -hmm. trust me i don't i don't know what god's going to do any more than anybody else does and I, I think it's fascinating when people um turn speculation about god into they know because mm -hmm. like oh really <laughs> you, you think you know huh i don't know but the theory that i like the best is by c.s lewis i think c.s lewis was a very great christian in his own uh, fashion quite an evangelist um, right. Everything I've read by him, I've found very uh, sound and well-written and really worthwhile, and I highly recommend them. In the book, The Great Divorce, he talks about hell. Mm. He talks about people degenerating in hell. I don't recall him exactly speculating on how far they degenerate, but it looks quite hopeless. I think that that is like a possibility, a real mm. possibility. You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus went to hell yes. during his, uh, the time between when he was crucified and when he reappeared to the disciples. So in that little three-day three window there, he went to hell. The Bible says he released the prisoners. It's a very short little uh, statement. My sense is if Jesus went to hell, uh, he would have been mobbed. 
because uh, the people down there are hopeless. And if he had appeared, the hope that they had denied, the hope that they didn't know, mm. the hope that they didn't have, the hope that they had rejected, whatever, whatever reason they had rejected God. When I talk about Jesus, I'm talking about God. When I talk about God, I'm talking about Jesus because I'm a Trinitarian. I believe in one God and three persons. Right. Um, so I use them in, interchangeably and, I, and not to neglect the Holy Spirit and all that. But uh, what can God do with the people? First of all, the people in hell can't get out of hell on their own. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's absolutely impossible. And people can't get to heaven on their own either. The only way we're going to go to heaven or go to hell is if that's the will of God. Right. And God loves everybody. God, and I know this for a fact from my experience with Jesus, God doesn't want people to go to hell. He wants everybody to come to heaven. Mm -hmm. But um, if people hate God, if they hate their fellow man, if they do um, evil, they're not going to heaven. Why would God want these people? And he heaven wouldn't be heaven if it was full of people that hated God. I mean, it's like, mm -hmm. come on. And one of the things that uh, God doesn't do is God doesn't do magic. God does do miracles and does a lot of miracles. And we don't know why God does this. Why does God cure this person of cancer and not cure that person? Why does God save this person in what is absolutely going to be a fatal car accident and not save that person? We, we don't know um, why God does those miracles. But God does not do magical thinking. By magical thinking, I'm talking about, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish I won the lottery. Okay, now I'm going to mm -hmm. win the lottery because I wished it. You know, I prayed mm -hmm. for it. God doesn't do that. You know, and the other thing about magic is, is that in case people don't understand, magic is all illusion. Magicians are highly skilled illusionists. You know, they don't actually make things appear out of thin air and they don't really saw people in half and they don't really levitate people. It's, it's all done. It's all an illusion. In fact, my uh, son one time uh, was working as a stagehand and got to work a magic show for the leading magician in the United States. And he said, oh, wow. he said it was really, really disillusioning being the backstage prop guy because he got to see how all the tricks work, all the illusions work. Anyways, the uh, magical thinking is not in the Bible. People like in hell that's just like, I hate this place. I don't want out. It's not going to get them out. I like to cite all the time. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that appears four times in the Bible. You know, when something appears in the Bible, the exact same words, four times in the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, it's, the Bible's trying to tell you something when it repeats itself, you know, multiple mm -hmm. times. And I believe that. But when it says anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, we're talking about heartfelt conversion calling on the name of the Lord, that not just, oh, Jesus, you know, get me out of here. So anyways, the bottom line is, um, I wrap this up. I'm maybe going on too long about it, but the, the people there had no faith in God. The faith was in themselves or money or power or their sexuality or whatever they put their faith in, but not God. A good friend of mine who's a Baptist minister once said, everyone has a God. Just the question is, who is your God? And the people in hell had the wrong God, which was pretty much themselves. And that's uh, the sorry state of the place. You know, Howard, something that I've noticed in many of the life after death experiences that I've read or watched on YouTube is that many people like yourself were not Christians. In fact, a number of them were hardcore atheists. And yet Jesus came to them after they had died. I know many Christians here in Uganda, and it would be the same anywhere in the world, 
who are deeply troubled by the thought that their dear grandma or mum or dad or child or loved one who they knew to be good people but who died without receiving Jesus, they think that they're now doomed to an eternity of torture in hell. Um, I, I'd love to respond to that. Yes, I've, I had that situation many times. First of all, you know, when people say they went to heaven, they might have gone to like the outer yes. circle. Exactly. They didn't, didn't go really into it that far. You know, they may they may have experienced. I mean, the, even the outer circle is wonderful of heaven. Um, but so anyways, let's talk about uh, people who don't know Jesus or um, only have like uh, the most casual relationship with him. I mean, you know, like, for example, Muslims think, say Jesus is a prophet, but not the son of God or whatever. In God's time, there's no time. So if a person has followed Christ, but doesn't know Jesus, okay, and I'm going to explain this in a second. In, in theology, they call it the autonomous Christ. People, people follow the Christ and follow the um, teachings of Christ, but they don't know Jesus. They don't know the Christian story a bit. What does it mean that they follow Christ? Well, Jesus was asked by a lawyer, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus answered him, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Other places in the Bible, he says to people, believe in me. But when he says, believe in me, he's not just talking about his person. More importantly, he's talking about what he taught. And this is one of the uh, big failings of Christianity. People say, oh, I believe in Jesus, but they don't follow him. They don't lead a Christian life. And Jesus speaks to them in Matthew 25, where he says, you called me Lord, Lord, but, you know, when I was thirsty, you didn't give me a drink. When I was, um, you know, naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was um, sick or in prison, you didn't visit me, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, um, he, he cast them out into the utter darkness, which is, you know, my definition of hell is being cast out in the utter darkness. Anyways, I mean, he tells them to depart from me. He says, depart from me. Jesus does not like hypocrites. If you, if you want to see the ugly side of Jesus, I, I, I mean that in the kindest possible way towards respectfully. I mean, where he gets angry with people. When he deals with hypocrites, he gets a little nasty, which is not nasty. It's just truth. Yes, read Matthew chapter 23. Nothing made Jesus as angry as those hypocritical Pharisees. If I were an actor, I would act, act those bits up with uh, some anger. In my voice, for sure. Um, so anyways, good people. Here's an analogy I use. Here's a, a Chinese woman from 200 years ago. She's never heard of Christianity. She's never met a missionary. She's never heard of Jesus Christ. And she grew up as a Zoroastrian or a Confucian or whatever, right? This woman we're talking about spent her life loving God as she understood it with all of her heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loved her neighbor as herself. We're talking about a good woman. When she dies, what's God do with her? Well, you know, God forgive me, I don't want to play God, but this is what I believe, that God is going to convert her when she leaves this world and goes into the next. Jesus is going to come to her, and he's going to say, Sister Luci Chang, come to me. You know, I am your Savior, come to me. And she and she because of his love, because of his beauty, she won't hesitate one second. She will rush into his arms, and he will welcome her to heaven. I just want to, I've, I've got something that can support this. 
Mm. Um, two Norwegian scientists want to do near-death studies in India. Mm. And this is published in the book. I, it's published in several books, but the book that I read in is Imagine Heaven by John Burke. Mm. Um, he quotes these um, scientists. They, they weren't religious people. They were scientists trying to, you know, look in the NDEs. And uh, what they found was everyone, everyone they interviewed said, we didn't see any of the Indian gods. We were greatly disappointed. We didn't see, you know, any of them. All this we saw was this man in white robes with long hair and a beard. And he shone with light and he was very loving. Hundreds of people they interviewed in India, that's what they saw. They didn't know his name, but they were drawn to him. He was drawn to them. Well, let me say one more thing. When I went to seminary, I had a uh, professor. His name was Gunye Muzorera from Zimbabwe. And he was a wonderful professor. He had come to the United States and gotten his uh, doctorate at Union Theological Seminary. He said to us seminary students, we were some Methodist seminary that I went to, he said, I, I feel sorry for you students. You think you brought Christ to Africa. You did not bring Christ to Africa. Christ has always been in Africa. We have always had some knowledge of the Christ in Africa. What you brought to Africa was Christianity, which gave us the full knowledge of the Christ, the full understanding of the Christ, the whole, the whole picture gave it, you know, the pure revelation of God. But don't think we were uh, completely apart from God here in Africa. You know, there was always some knowledge of God through Christ. Yes, I mean, how can we believe that every African who died in the thousands of years before the missionaries brought the gospel to Africa are in hell because they didn't get the chance to hear about Jesus? Absolutely. So God is going to appear in the form of uh, the Christ to the people who have loved God and loved their neighbor. I say you have no worries about those good people. The people that we need to worry about are the people where we should put our energy is the people today who are, to use the common phrase, lost. They're, they're going through life and they don't, know, um, they don't know where they came from. They don't know where they're going and they don't know what to do with their lives. They're, they're squandering their life on money and sexuality and power and greed and uh, possessions and things like that. And all of that stuff, although it can be a little bit of fun for a while, it's all a waste of time. So just to be very clear, Howard, and this is what turns many people off to Christianity, the teaching that if you die without saying the sinner's prayer, you'll spend eternity in hell. And if you do, you'll enjoy eternity in heaven, and it's just black and white. But if they die without having had the opportunity to hear the true gospel and have a misconception about who Jesus is because maybe they come from a devout Muslim or Hindu family or they've been turned off to Christianity by the hypocritical self-righteousness of some of the churches or for any other legitimate reason, then Jesus will surely give them a chance to receive him after they die, if they haven't been given a fair chance to receive him while they are alive. Is that correct? Dying's a process. It's not like a light switch on and off. Like <laughs> when, when we die, um, we're more alive than we've ever been. God has all the time in the universe to work with us. There's a, a nugget in the Bible that um, is very important to me. I think it's one of the, the really big cut diamonds in the Bible. And it says, quote, Men judge by appearances, but God judges by the heart. My point is God can look into the most 
awful prison in the world with all the worst felons in the world. Mm -hmm. And he knows the hearts of those men and women in there. God knows what's in their heart. We go, okay, you know, you're a despicable person because I've done prison ministry. So I know a little bit of what I'm talking about here. Mm -hmm. You know, you're a despicable person because you're in prison. You know, there's no hope for you. You're damned forever. You're going to hell. No, wrong. That's not true. There are people with good hearts in prison. And mm -hmm. let me just balance that by saying we look at people in the highest, most powerful positions, politicians, doctors, lawyers, physicians, whatever. Plenty of good people there, but there's also some really, really despicable human beings there who are not going to enjoy heaven when they die. <laughs> I think I know who you're talking about, but we won't get into that now. Okay, let's just stay in hell. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, let's just stay on that topic before we move on to heaven, because I have another question, if you're able to answer it, and that is, is hell an eternal place of punishment for everybody who's not saved? Or is it more like a correctional facility? We know that at the great white throne judgment at the end of the 1,000 years of the millennium, when the unsaved of all ages are judged, and if they're being judged, it seems that their final fate has not yet been determined. Could it be at that, that point, according to their level of repentance and whether they've learned their lessons, some of them may be permitted to live on the newly created new earth, not in the heavenly city, which is solely for the bride of Christ, but outside on the new earth? My best friend was a Roman Catholic priest. When he and I met up, it was like I had two sisters and I had a brother. And like when I met, his name was Jim. When I met Jim, I mean, I found the brother I, I never had. And uh, although he came from a big Catholic family and had a lot of brothers, he, he called me his brother too. For some reason, Jim and I just became the very best of friends. And we talked a lot, mostly theology and stuff and church. And Jim used to say to me very strongly, you know, you didn't go to hell, you went to purgatory. And mm -hmm. I said, okay, Jim, fine, whatever. I like that the Catholic Church has this um, purgatory means to be purged, purified, perfected. That's the, the root word from the Greek, P-U-R, pur, which we get pure, perfection, purified, purgatory. I think we all need a little purification <laughs> as we move into heaven. But anyways, he used to uh, say that to me all the time. I'm not a Catholic and um, I'm a Protestant. And, you know, our, our theology is heaven, hell. Also, there was a, a big schism in the 1500s. One of the reasons for the uh, Reformation with Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, which I'm a, I'm a Zwinglian myself, not a Lutheran. The uh, Catholic Church was selling release you know, every coin dropped in the box <laughs> to soul from purgatory was the, the theme of that, which built St. Peter's Cathedral, by the way. It was a very, very successful money-making campaign, and it was a huge turnoff to the reformers. And um, ever since then, we Protestants have, like, not liked the word purgatory. <laughs> you know, we, we reject it. But anyways, um, I think that the Catholic Church has a, a pretty good... Um, Yes. Well, another name for it could be paradise, right? Because Jesus on the cross said to the repentant thief, today 
you'll be with me in paradise. But we know that Jesus didn't go to heaven that day, but he spent three days in the heart of the earth. So that seems to confirm that there are different places under the earth where the unsaved go. And one of them is called paradise, which seems to be not such a bad place to be. And Paul talks about, you know, I was taken up into the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 13. The afterlife is a whole lot more complicated than people <laughs> can imagine. Right. I mean, how complicated it could be? It could be as complicated as there are beings in the world that complicated, you know? Because <laughs> one of the interesting things about God and Jesus is they see us as individuals. They don't see us as clumps, groups, tribes. They see us as individuals. God's love is real personal. Of course, that personal love that Jesus has for each one of us is something that it's impossible for us to understand. And I don't know if you got any sense of it while you were with him, how he could spend all that personal time with you, but also he's personally with each one of his children at the same time. It's, it's quite extraordinary. I don't know how he does it. But, you know, he told, he told me at the end of my experience when he was talking about me coming back, he said, don't you know I've always been with you and I always will be with you? And it's like, okay, if you say so, this is my problem. And I hope that everybody uh, thinks about this. You know, Jesus is with me all the time, so I have to behave myself. You know, Jesus mm -hmm. is watching me and I have disappointed him, I must say. And I try not to do that. I mean, when people ask me, like, so what's my life about? I said, I want to live a life pleasing to God. Mm -hmm. You know? God's not some distant philosophical notion in my head. God is very personal. Encouraging you how very dearly Jesus loves you. You're listening to Nightlight. Howard, I have another question now, which again is maybe impossible for us to understand or even for you to explain. Yet many of the people who recount their life after death experiences talk about the life review where you're shown a playback of your life, everything you ever did, and it would seem you'd have to live your whole life over again to do that and to draw all the lessons from it. How was it for you? What sense did you have of the time it was taking for your life review? Was it like living your whole life over again? At the end of it, it was just a moment in time. What can you tell us about the life review? It was quite timeless, but what I experienced was so there's this um, semicircle of angels around Jesus and I, and in the midst were the images of my life. And it was really quite interesting. Um, the thing that I can compare it to, they were like holographic images, and we could actually, we didn't go anywhere. Jesus and I, for example, and the angels, none of us ever moved. We were stationary the whole time, but we could actually go around the scene. The thing that I found fascinating was you can compare it to like a stage play because the emphasis was on the interaction of people. It was always about my life review was always about how I interacted with other people. So the necessary props were there. Like there was the table, the chair, the couch, whatever. But, you know, every once in a while, I looked back to see the, uh, like in the kitchen, to see the refrigerator. And I didn't see the refrigerator. <laughs> Reason why I mentioned when I was a little boy, refrigerators were um, a really big deal. <laughs> I mean, to have a refrigerator was really special. Not many people had refrigerators and we had, you know, but we had an electric refrigerator, you know, with a coil on top. So I, I looked for the fridge because I loved the fridge, you know, because it had, you know, cold things in it. No freezer, of course. Uh, people, necessary props, 
no backgrounds. And the fascinating thing was, is that as we watched these um, dramas, mm. if you will, unfold, I don't know how they did it, but they got me to experience what the other person was feeling and thinking. Mm. And that was wonderful when I was loving and kind. And it was horrible when I hurt the people with it. I hurt my mother a lot. And you know what? I didn't know that. I hurt my father. One of the, like one of the huge things about my life review was like, I always thought my father was a really bad man and I was a victim. And that's why we hated each other. He was evil. I was good. He was a monster, you know, a predator. And I was, the, you know, the recipient of all of his badness. In the life review that I saw that that wasn't true at all. My, my father was a very, very disturbed man. Okay. I mean, he had a lot of problems. A lot of his problems had to do with the stress of his work and things like that. He had a horrible childhood. I won't go into it. Um, mm. The more he hurt my feelings, the more I, in my own kid way, got back at him. When he tried to show love and kindness and things like that, you know, after a while, I'd gotten to the point where, um, this is what I'm learning in my life with you. I didn't know this. Mm. And, you know, uh, the, the more he tried on occasions to be a good dad, the more I rejected him because he'd hurt me, you know, so I punished him. You know how kids are, you know how people are, you know, I'm going to punish you because you didn't treat me nice the other day. Right. And so I saw the deterioration of our relationship as mutual. It wasn't a one way street. It was a two way street. And so I just want to um, make this point that after my near death experience, I was bound and determined to um, have a new and good relationship with my father, which I did. And guess what? It made him very happy because I, I was the son who came home. Uh, well, literally, but more importantly, came home and, and embraced him. He still had his awful qualities. <laughs> you know, I just didn't pay attention to it anymore. Wow. Beautiful. Okay, the next question that a number of listeners had is about your outsider's tour of heaven. In your testimony, you only briefly mentioned that Jesus took you on an outsider's tour of heaven. Can you give us more details of what you saw? First of all, there's so much in heaven that if you had a billion lifetimes, you couldn't get mm -hmm. to explore it all. But some of the, some of the characteristics of heaven is there's no shadows in heaven. There's no darkness in heaven. The light of God and the light of the beings, because one of the things that happens to us when we go to heaven is that we become slowly transformed into beings that have a light, um, uh, that we, we give off light. In this world, we are, we're, we're meat and bones, okay? <laughs> in this world, we're meat and bones. But in that world, we have a totally different physiology. We have a body. But it's, it's a different physics. And one of the interesting things about it is, is that it's light emitting, not light absorbing. So in, in heaven, everything is illumined. Everything radiates light. So in a weird sense, everything is alive. The trees, the flowers, every, everything. Well, in this world, everything's alive, but we don't really appreciate it. Okay. I got to tell you, I'm a tree hugger. You know, I am a tree hugger. I, I have a sense that I can appreciate uh, the spirit in a tree. 
matter of fact, I was a woodcarver, but I, I got to tell you this. Um, I, only, I only took dead trees. I never took down live trees. In this world, life abounds, just abounds. And in heaven, you're more acutely aware of all the living things. You know, the Bible says um, even the rocks will sing out praises of God and things like that. Well, the whole point of heaven is God. You can't begin to overstate the importance of God in heaven. God's the centerpiece. And everything in heaven is giving God glory because it only makes sense. God created everything. There is no thing that God didn't create. So God is the source of everything. So just out of appreciation for being, everything gives glory to God. But even much more importantly than that is that God is love. And God gives that love to everything. And so what our job is in this world, as I said earlier, when the Bible says, love of God will lay heart, mind, soul, and strength, that's our job. If you want to know what your job is in this world, your job is to love God with everything you got. When you go to heaven, it's no longer theoretical. It's your breath. It's your consciousness. It's your being. Because you are given so much love. All we're doing is reciprocating the love that we're being given. You know, we don't, we don't have to imagine or create or, you know, talk ourselves into this love. All we are doing in heaven is responding to the love, which is the basis of our whole being. And one of the ways that we love is by sharing that love. And that's, as Jesus tells us, job number two in this world is to share the love of God with everybody that we, we meet in um, any way that we can. I like the word kindness. <laughs> I like that word a lot. Um, let me just give you an example um, that anybody can do. When I go to the grocery store, I run into two people invariably, the cashier and the bagger. One of the things that I like to do in, in my shopping experience, wherever it is, is know the person's name. Like when I, when I go to a restaurant and I and wait, I always ask the server what their name is. And then I use their name. And I try and treat them uh, like a, with kindness, like a decent human being and not like a, a, a machine or a slave or, you know, someone to um, belittle, which I was a server for seven years. Trust me. There are people that seem to be sadomasochists that go to restaurants to, you know, afflict other people. Anyways, but most people are very nice. So I go to, I go to the grocery store and um, invariably they wear a little tag with their name on it. So I go, hey, Judy, how's it going? You know, now I know she's busy. I know there's people, you know, waiting to see her. I know she, so I'm not trying to um, engage her in a long conversation. All I want to do is say, Judy or Bob, I see you, you know, you're a human being to me. I know you, you know, you're working and I appreciate it. That's what I want to say. Um, one of the things that I love in the U.S., in the last 10 years, it's become common to hire disabled people to mm. be baggers. Some are pretty, pretty disabled, mentally, physically, both. They are always surprised when I talk to them and use their name. One of my favorites at the grocery store goes, his name's Davey. He's in his 50s. And I kid him and I make jokes with him and he laughs. You know, um, mm -hmm. okay, it's a guy thing. I asked Davey, so you've been on any interesting dates lately? Or, you know, and mm -hmm. he laughs and laughs and laughs and laughs. He thinks that's so funny because, I mean, it's, I talk to him like a guy, you know, I, I mean, I, I talk, I don't talk down to him. I don't feel sorry for him. He's a, you know, he's a 50 year old man and uh, I just treat him like a buddy. Okay. That's what I'm talking about. Kindness. 
just seeing another person as someone that you care about. Mm -hmm. I don't suspect I'm ever going to get involved in a theological conversation with David. Not appropriate, not the time, not the place, but uh, uh, nothing excites me more than to uh, get involved with a stranger like on an airplane or in the airport terminal or whatever and just uh, see if the conversation goes that way. I love that. Beautiful testimony, Howard. And yeah, that was obviously one of the main things you brought back with you from heaven the importance of showing love and kindness to those who the Lord brings across our paths each day. Anything else you saw in heaven? Heavenly architecture, landscapes, angels, streets of gold. Did you see any of that? Yeah, yes, I did. But the, the most important thing that I saw off in a distance was I did not see God. I'm offended when people say they saw God because the Bible says no one has seen God. I mean, I've seen Jesus, and I said earlier that Jesus is God. Jesus says the Father and I are one. So I guess in that sense, you could say it. But so in the center of heaven is God. Jesus and I are far off. I'm talking miles here, okay, miles off. And around him is a chorus. I can't begin to estimate. It was an ocean, a sea of people, billions, trillions. And they were all contributing to the praise of God. Now, I asked Jesus how to work because they, nobody had a violin, nobody had a piano, nobody had a trumpet, nobody had a flute, nobody had a harp, just people. And I said to Jesus, so where is this music coming from? And they said, well, God is the composer and conductor, but each person contributes their own gift. I said, so everybody contributes to this symphony. I called it a symphony, although it was really a choir. And he said, yes, because each person's life is their instrument. Now, if you talk to vocal musicians, also known as singers, they'll tell you, my body is my instrument, right? Singers all know that, that their body is their instrument. Well, in heaven, our self, our whole life is our instrument. Okay. I'm going to tell you something that I don't share too often. Mm -hmm. So I asked Jesus, what's the most important talent we can cultivate in this world? And he said, music. And I said, why music? Because that was a big disappointment, by the way, because I'm a visual artist. I do painting and sculpture. Mm. And I never thought of myself as a singer. And usually when I sang, people would tell me to stop. So ever since my conversion, I've been trying to convert to my singing. I'm in the church choir. I'm a bass, and I've been in church choir for several decades now, and I'm working on my voice. I, I don't think I'm quite ready for my debut, debut right now, but uh, I am working. I said, why music, Jesus? Why music? Because he, he really frustrated me when he told me music was the most. He said, because um, music teaches you how to harmonize with others. You know what? Yeah. For example, We've had a couple of people come into our church choir who they were always sopranos for some reason, always female sopranos. They would come to the church choir and they would want to sing louder and above and differently than everybody else. They wanted to be noticed. Mm -hmm. Guess what? They didn't last long in the choir. Our choir director, who is a real pro, she didn't tolerate it. Mm -hmm. And their egos were hurt by her not tolerating it. And they left. Being in a choir is about harmony. Life is about harmony. And right. you know what? When you do the choir right, you've got your own voice. I don't sound like the guys on either side of me. My bass is different than their bass. 
Matter of fact, I can do a real nice low, you know, better than some. <laughs> but, you know, but I can't go as slow as some people. Anyways, living in harmony. What's it mean? It means getting along and not just getting along, but actually contributing and sharing with one another. What a world this would be. You want, want to turn this world into a paradise? Let's live in harmony with one another. The heavenly choir was like, it's the ultimate experience of heaven. Wow. Uh, even in the book of Revelation, you hear about those heavenly choirs of angels, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands around the throne and praising and singing and worshiping God. Anything else that you'd like to share about heaven, what you saw or experienced? People should not have anxiety about going to heaven because God is the most patient being in the universe. You go to heaven and you are weary. You know what God's going to um, give you? He's going to say, I mean, depending upon what you like, here's a meadow. Why don't you just go relax in the meadow for a while and enjoy the, the beautiful sounds, the beautiful flowers, the the flow of the river going through the meadow, you know, go take a rest, you know, by worldly standards, that rest could be a hundred years or a thousand years. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You got all the time in the world. For example, you go to heaven and like, there's so many things I wanted to know that I never knew. Oh, God says, great. We have a university over there, not a school like here, but I mean, where all the wise, you know, scholars have been and we can go over and talk to them. Like for example, me personally, I am a huge admirer of Paul. Um, if there's one human being that is my superhero of heroes, mm -hmm. Paul, St. Paul. He's not my bucket list. He's on my um, A number one. I'm, I'm going to Paul and say, Paul, I got some questions for you because Paul persevered in circumstances that I would fail. The reason why he's my hero is, the, I think, the bravest, most courageous being that's ever lived that, that I know of. So I want, I want to talk to Paul. And you know what? I have no doubt that Paul's going to make time for annoying little old me, you know, mm -hmm. to ask him all kinds of personal questions about, you know, this and that. Beautiful. Inspiring you to draw closer to God. You're listening to Nightlight. Thanks for sharing these wonderful insights into heaven, Howard. And another question for you, and this is about the conversations that you had with Jesus, in which you asked him all kinds of questions. On the last show, you said that if we have a year or two, you could divulge everything he told you, but maybe you could choose just a couple of the most important things that Jesus shared with you that you think that we should know. Let me give you a couple. First of all, I was born in 46, so it means my, my consciousness came about. I'm in my awareness of the world in the 50s and uh, early 60s. And my generation growing up in the United States in the 50s and 60s was there's going to be a nuclear war between the United States and Russia. Mm -hmm. It's in inevitable. It's going to happen. We used to have brilliant people. They would talk about the doomsday clock and like we're one minute from midnight, you know, one, one minute away from the nuclear war. When I was a young man, we had a thing called the Cuban Missile Crisis. And believe me, everybody that I was with was convinced this is it. And nuclear war meant by the time we got the air raid sirens, we had special nuclear war sirens in the U.S. 
that meant the missiles or planes were a few minutes away. There wasn't time to go to the bank or call mama or anything. It was like, you know, it was a few minutes away. I mean, the annihilation in um, the cities would be, you know, instantly, you know, you'd be vaporized. And then out further out in the country, um, you would suffer horribly and die. And then the people that didn't suffer and die immediately from the radiation poisoning, they would all die and all the animals would die and the trees would die and everything would die. The end of the world. Wonderful movie about that called On the Beach mm. takes place in Australia that talks about the end of the world because of nuclear war. Anyways, great fear. I mean, that fear haunted just me, but my whole generation. And I think it's, if you want to know why that whole hippie thing happened in the late 60s, I would attribute it to the anxiety and fear of that gen my generation mm -hmm. um, living under the threat of, well, the world's going to come to an end any minute. You may as well do what you want to do because, you know, get all the gratification you can now because there's nothing left. So I asked Jesus about nuclear war and he said, there's not going to be a nuclear war. And I said, why is it not going to be a nuclear war? And he said, because God's not going to allow human beings to destroy this world and destroy each other and destroy all the animals and plants. This is God's creation, not ours. And God's not going to let people. So, okay, being a smarty, I said to Jesus, you mean if someone launches a missile, God will knock it down? And he said, absolutely. Even if a missile got launched somewhere, God's not going to allow it mm -hmm. to uh, explode. It, mm -hmm. I just beat it down. So it's like, whoa, okay. And Jesus did give me the caution. He said, there's going to be some nuclear accidents, but not nuclear war. So that's one thing. But the most important thing that Jesus told me, and I really want to get this uh, in before we run out of time, was I asked Jesus um, when I was negotiating with him about, he told me I had to come back to this world and I didn't want to come back here. I wanted to go to heaven. And he told me um, that I couldn't go to heaven, that it wasn't my time and I wasn't fit. I didn't have the character to go to heaven. You have to have the right character to get into heaven. Hello. <laughs> you know, if your character is unfit for heaven, you're not going to heaven. And the alternative is not pleasant at all. So I said, if you send me back, what would you have me do? And before Jesus could answer, I started to tell him all the things that I would do for him. Without going into it, as I was spinning off my fantasies of all the way I was going to promote Jesus with shrines and all kinds of things, I was, you know, mm. going to make a big shrine to Jesus. <laughs> he said, don't do that. Don't do that. I don't want that. Please don't do that. I said, well, what do you want me to do? Because I hadn't given him a chance to answer. And so finally he answered me. He said, I want you to love the person that you're with. And I said, okay, fine. I'll love the person I'm with. But what do you want me to do? And he said, I just told you what. Now I'm giving you a verbatim of our conversation. So... He said, I just told you what to do. I want you to love the person you're with. And I said, yeah, but what good is that going to do? And he said, if you love the person that you're with, it's going to have an effect on them. And they may take that love to another person. And it's going to ultimately, that will change the world. And I said, so you're telling me that I can change the world by loving the person you're with? And he said, well, yes, but there's millions of other people involved in this, not just you. You're not, you're not the only one. And I went, oh, okay. That was good to know. And then I said, but wait a minute. Now, keep in mind, this was in 85. So I said to him, uh, but there's 6 billion people in the world. Today, we have 8 billion people. But back in 85, it was 6 billion. Anyways, I said, so you've got millions and there's 8 billion people in the world. I don't think you have enough people in the, in the program to change the world. And he said, we do. And he said, we also have the angels. And I said, well, how many angels do you have? And he said, well, there's actually billions of angels. 
and they're in the world and they're trying to influence people and make things go right instead of wrong. I said, so you got millions of people and billions of angels and you think that's going to change the world by them loving one another. And he said, yes. I said to Jesus, I don't think so. I don't believe it. And he said, here's the biggie now. It's God's plan. When he said it's God's plan, I couldn't think of any smart thing to say to that except, oh, oh, God's plan. You know, Jesus in the gospel of John says, this is my commandment, love one another. Pretty simple. And that's what he told me to do. Come back into this world and love the person that I'm with. So I've been trying to do that and not just in my neighborhood in Kentucky, but I've tried to do it everywhere, going everywhere I've been. And I've been, you know, to Africa and South America and Central America and China. I'm doing a big, big project in Central America right now with Maya Indians. Loving people is an action. It's not, I'm not talking about sentiment. I'm not talking Mm -hmm. about feelings. Forget that. It doesn't matter what you feel. I mean, sometimes when I'm on a mission trip, I'm exhausted. You know, sometimes my legs are killing me and my back hurts. I don't feel very good. That's nothing. It's not important. I'm talking about loving people, you know, by being real with them, by um, hopefully being an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You know, that's what I mean by loving them. And, uh, you know, sometimes, as Jesus did, it means confronting people, which isn't a lot of fun. But when uh, people are really hostile, sometimes you've got to, um, you know, stand your ground, you know, speak the truth to them. Bottom line I'll summarize it this, you know, I thought what Jesus told me, love the person you're with, I thought, oh, yeah, no, no big deal. You know, that's easy. Okay, that was in 1985. This is 2001. And I am still learning how to love people. You mean 2021? Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) 2021. I am still trying to learn how to love people. It's the most interesting, challenging, and wonderful course of learning and that's really what life is about, I think, is uh, the real curriculum of this world is how do we love? Mm-hmm. And I, of course, I mean that appropriately, not inappropriately. Shining Love's Light. You're listening to Nightlight. Jesus said that in the last day before he returns that the love of many would turn cold. And over the past couple of years, the devil has done everything he can to stop loving interaction between people, what with lockdowns, masks, social distancing, and so on, all to isolate people and stop them from loving each other. So much anger in the United States, it's very, very disturbing. When you were with him, did Jesus say anything to you that would prepare you for the days in which we're now living? Do you have anything you think that Jesus would like you to pass on by way of encouragement or hope because many people's faith is faltering as they see the darkness and fear and confusion that's engulfing the world. Is there anything that you can share? What I'm getting from God, what I'm getting from Jesus is that the most important thing that we need to do is form community. There's another name for community. It's called church. And church is not a building. I mean, I love church buildings. Matter of fact, I love church buildings a lot. Chartres Cathedral in Chartres, France was the highlight of my life. The most beautiful church cathedral in the world. 
But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about community. A church community can be uh, two or three. A church community can be an Alcoholics Anonymous group. Church can be a Bible study. Church can be a, a group of people that like to um, make good music, hopefully praise music together or you know, sing together. I just this morning watched a program on the Jubilee uh, Singers from Fisk University in um, Tennessee. And I'll tell you what, they were doing church, this uh, choir. They were doing church. I mean, they were, they were church, you know, um, community where people could come together, work together cooperatively in harmony and, um, you know, have a, a love of God and love for one another. If you think you're going to survive these times ahead, by getting a whole bunch of automatic weapons and stocking up on uh, supplies, doing that on your own, um, you're deceiving yourself. That the only thing that's going to um, get us through these hard times is a community where we can love and support each other, not just affection, but more importantly, um, in meaningful ways. Nightlight. You're listening to an international edition of Nightlight, shining God's love light to the world. Howard, thank you again for coming on the program and for all those fascinating insights you've given us into the afterlife, especially for the lessons of love that we can immediately apply to our lives right now. I'm certainly looking forward to reading your book, Descent into Death, as well as the other books that you've written. And I believe they're all widely available on Amazon and Kindle and other platforms. The, the one thing I want to say, if people want to know uh, any more about me, I have a website, howardstorm.com. And it's got, I've written four books and it's got links to those and a little bit about my life and um, a really great picture of me and my dog. Mm -hmm. uh, I love that picture. And uh, anyways, there's also, um, there's a contact point. Mm -hmm. And if they um, fill out the contact, that comes directly to me. People always say, oh, I want this to go to Howard Storm, not a staff. I don't have a staff. I wish I had a staff. <laughs> no, the it's, this is a one-man show here, one-man operation. So if you, if you try and contact me, you will. And of course, you have quite a few interviews posted on YouTube. People can just search for you on YouTube and hear a lot more details of your story. And there are many other life-after-death stories on YouTube too. I mean, now that everybody has video cameras on their mobile phones, it's so easy for people to film their own testimonies and put them up on YouTube. You know, back in the... 80s, I had no idea of YouTube or social media. I mean, that, that wasn't part of my consciousness. Well, YouTube and the social media platforms didn't even get rolling until 10 or 15 years ago. So um, people would invite me. I was almost always to churches and I would give my testimony and someone would say, do you mind if I record this, film it and record it? And I go, no, go ahead, whatever. Um, I had no idea. And then uh, I started, uh, eventually started to get emails from people was, I saw your testimony on YouTube. Oh, I didn't know there was such a, that's when I talked to like the Methodist church or at the, right. you know, Baptist church or whatever. All of a sudden I became well known on the internet and started getting emails from all over the world. And when I mean all over the world, I'm talking about India and South America and France and Sweden and, you know, Hawaii and, you know, China and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah. I once said to someone, you know, I'm famous on the internet. And I said, don't ever say you're famous. That sounds so vain. And I said, okay, so I can't say I'm famous, but I'm well known 
by a group of people on the web, on the internet. And the interesting thing, I've never put anything on the internet. It's hmm. just people do that. I mean, I, I, they asked me to do an interview, I do the interview, and then, uh, boop, it appears magically. Nightlight. What a delight. I'll tell you why I do this, and I think you, you know without me yes. telling you, is that God gave me a gift. Mm-hmm. He gave me a testimony, and I could do one of two things. I could walk around and congratulate myself and feel good about myself because I have this wonderful experience, you know, and keep it to myself and go about my life, think about what a fortunate person I am, or the alternative is share it. And so that's what I've been doing since 1985. Um, I've never said no. I've spoken to groups of one person, two people, three people. I've spoken to groups with several thousand at a time, tell the same story. I've done tons of uh, TV, radio, things like that. The people thinks most impressed with, I've been on Oprah Winfrey two times. And everybody's oh. like really impressed. Oh, you've been on Oprah? What's she like? Well, she's very nice, actually. God bless you, Howard. And thank you for being on our little radio show. Thanks so much. And God bless. God bless you, too. And that's it for this week. Let's stay thinking about and anticipating the joys and wonders of heaven as we go out with this oldie goldie from Jeremy Spencer. It's a beautiful place to be Full of beautiful people It's a beautiful place to be Where there'll be no more time Everything the way that it should be Loving each other in harmony